Ajahn Sumedho. Ajahn just means teacher. Ajahn Sumedho, who's a, a teacher in this lineage, once said that our task in life is to train the heart rather than to follow the heart. And, of course, to some degree, it depends on how we define these terms, because to follow the heart, if we mean to awaken to our deepest aspirations and try to fulfill them, this is a great thing, to uncover um, priorities that have been lost, this is a wonderful thing. This is something that clearly can happen on retreats. To break out of conventional ways of being, which may we may be following simply because of convention, to conform just for the sake of conforming. Of course, if one's tendency is to take an as a stance to not conform or to um, be unconventional for the sake of unconvention, being unconventional, then to follow the heart in a positive way would be being conventional or, or conforming. Following the heart may mean for you understanding that some of the values that we may have grown up in and believed in that are very predominant in the culture, such as the stress on appearance, the stress on accumulation, the stress on success at all costs, we may begin to question these values. And so following one's heart may mean finding a new way of being and following something other than what has been taught to us in the world. But too often, following the heart can mean simply following our emotions or our desires, pursuing pleasure as a means to lasting happiness, which it can never offer us, avoiding discomfort, and in the avoiding of discomfort, not experience a gr- experiencing a greater sense of freedom in our lives. Following our hearts may mean trying to find happiness where it can't be found, And so finding ourselves caught in a struggle over and over again when we are attempting to follow our hearts. Even if we're not deluded in the above ways, you know, even if um, we have some clarity and we have some wisdom about path in our lives, we have some sense about where suffering comes from and where happiness comes from, even if we know this, Without an inner discipline, without the heart being well-trained, we may find that it's very difficult to live our insights. We may know an awful lot. We may understand. We may read the teachings and a little bell goes off over and over again. Yes, that's true. Yes, that's right. And we, we understand and we think it makes sense and it makes us happy. But then it makes us really unhappy when we can't live what we know. You know, when we have a really great insight or a really profound insight or a really deep insight, and then we find that there's an ever-growing gap between what we know and how we live, and we find ourselves getting more and more unhappy. 
we may be aware of a sense of deprivation, of a sense of an inner wound or inner lack of some sort. But we may not know how to actually know fulfillment, knowing the sense of deprivation, but then this kind of habitual following of the heart as a way to find fulfillment when it's not possible. So what we are engaged in in meditation is actually undergoing this training of the heart instead of following emotions that arise, instead of following desires and thinking that they will bring about the lasting happiness that we're yearning for. Instead of this, we're shifting into a training of the heart. We're learning, actually, how to trust in our own experiences instead of the mind of opinions and thoughts and judgments and descriptions and viewpoints. We're learning how to be present and to trust in the honesty of the here and now. And we do this in a number of different ways. We do this by simply being with the breathing the way we are as a way to gain a certain kind of steadiness and calm so that we are able to actually look into the nature of the heart and find our own true nature. We do this by engaging the aspects of wise effort, mindfulness, and concentration. Wise effort, of course, being the willingness to turn towards the present moment over and over again. Mindfulness, meaning being present and noticing what is happening, being aware of what is happening and noticing the subtleties, noticing the nuances of what is happening. And concentration being sustaining our noticing long enough to see deeply into how things actually are. And if we move away too quickly, we won't ever see the truth of things. We'll be quite deluded, actually. So turning towards the present moment, noticing what is happening in all of its nuances and subtleties, and sustaining our attention. And this is what we're engaged in over and over again. This is how we actually train the heart. And the Buddha said that the consequences of training the heart are quite wonderful. And the consequences of an untrained heart are really not so great. So I'll read you something that he said. Practitioners, I know not of any other single thing so intractable as the untamed mind. The untamed mind is indeed a thing untractable. Practitioners, I know not of any other single thing so tractable as the tamed mind. The tamed mind is indeed a thing tractable. Practitioners, I know not of any other single thing so conducive to great loss as the untamed mind. The untamed mind indeed conduces to great loss. Practitioners, I know not of any other single thing so conducive to great profit as the tamed mind. The tamed mind indeed conduces to great profit. Practitioners, I know not of any other single thing that brings such woe as the mind that is untamed, uncontrolled, 
unguarded and unrestrained. Such a mind indeed brings great woe. Practitioners, I know not of any other single thing that brings such bliss as the mind that is tamed, controlled, guarded, and restrained. Such a mind indeed brings great bliss. So as you can see, the way to train the heart is by taming the mind. What this means is that as we undergo this process, we are engaged in actually strengthening the heart. It's almost as if the heart is an emotional muscle. I don't know if physiologically it is a muscle, but (laughs) metaphorically speaking, it's as if it is this muscle that we are strengthening. And as we strengthen the heart, things become more workable in our lives. Sometimes we begin practice out of a great um, sense of chaos in our life when something really difficult has happened and we find that we've fallen apart and we need something. We don't know what, but we need something. And so we come to practice. Other times we begin practice and we stay with the practice and then something happens in our life. Now, it is inevitable that something happens in everyone's life. Many times, a lot of things, but at least one really, really difficult thing. And what we can see is that if we've been practicing all along, both are fine because whatever gets us to practice is good. But if we've been practicing all along, what we can find is that there is an inner strength there to be able to work with the difficult. And we don't find ourselves completely collapsed or lost or overwhelmed. Or if we do, at least we're not judging it, which is very, very helpful because it takes a whole layer off and then we can just allow ourselves to be and not give ourselves such a hard time about how we're reacting to it. Sometimes that is the significant piece. But... Whenever anything difficult happens, we realize that we don't have our same refuges available for us. You know? I mean, by what I mean by our same refuges is that we can easily move towards fantasies or plans as a way to find refuge you know, in our life, whether anything difficult is happening or not, just to find a little bit of comfort or rest or peace or ease. But what we find is that when we're in the midst of something enormously difficult, these refuges are not available for us. They're just not there for us. When we go through something enormously emotional, like losing someone dear to us, or facing a chronic illness, or a terminal illness, or the many, many things that can happen to us as human beings, we find that the fantasies don't hold up. You know? Something is too strong. You know? the, the power of the event is too strong. The reactions to the event are too strong. The feelings are too strong. And so our usual refuges are not there to be found. If we have the Dharma at that point, we can go deeper. We can find another place to rest. And then we can sometimes find that in the midst of the difficult, it is possible to learn. You know? Not to go through it from a perspective of wanting to learn too quickly, 
But of course, if there is strength, if there is inner strength on any level, you know, if we've at all practiced and have touched any degree of strength, have done these kinds of, of exercises for the mind, then we are actually able oftentimes to learn from our difficult experiences, to come out of it differently, you know, to come out of it actually sometimes quite enriched, even though in the midst of it we never would have dreamed that that were possible and we never would have wished what happened to us on anyone else. Nonetheless, sometimes we do come out of difficult experiences quite changed. But this is only if there is some degree of inner strength that makes it possible to work with things as they are rather than be crushed by things as they are. We find that whether we practice or not, there are going to be disappointments in life. There are going to be irritations. People are still going to irritate us. There are still going to be shocks that happen, surprises that happen in life that are totally unexpected, totally unexpected. Betrayals that happen in life. Uh, Losses, certainly, that happen in life. Whether we practice or not, these things do happen, will happen. But if we practice in the practice, it's not as if we're not affected. Now, it's not as if, we're, if, as if we're numb or withdrawn or not affected. Even just a, an easy example of somebody insults us, if we're sensitive, it's going to feel like we were stabbed in the heart. However, we may feel the stab for one moment instead of 10 years later. You know? <laughs> this is the difference. This is the difference. Hmm. We may find that although events in life still happen and there's no way that we can protect ourselves from the inevitability of being human and what happens to us as humans, we can find that there's a cushioning within the heart, that the heart is cushioned, that there's an inner calm to support us. So we can find ourselves steadier and more firm in the face of things. Training the heart, taming the mind, unifies and heals us. It makes the mind whole instead of being fragmented. Instead of being discombobulated and all over the place and being one way in one situation and an utterly different way in another situation. Instead of being able to be kind to one person and not at all able to be even you know, look like we're being kind to another person. Instead of the fragmented ways that we often seem to think that we need to live our life, there's a unification and a healing that comes about through training the heart. We come together. There's a sense of coming together, of collecting the energies, rather than simply being swayed by every energy that arises. Kind of a hit or miss way of living in life. Some of them are great, but it's hit or miss. There's a great deal more steadiness in our lives being in this direction of healing and unification when we are practicing because we are collecting all of the energies together. We are more in touch with our inner resources, and because of this, we are more in touch with an inner fullness. 
which means it's really deeply significant to be in touch with an inner fullness, an inner satisfaction, because it means that we are less dependent externally on how things are, which is such a huge thing. Less dependent on how others are around us. Less dependent on situations. Less dependent on whether we get what we want or not. Yeah? If we have this sense of, um, of inner peace or inner fulfillment, inner satisfaction, then we're not hungry ghosts. You know? We're not trying to always get something outside of us. We're not going about this world with incredible neediness. You know, we still have needs. Of course we have needs. And part of practice is to discern between our needs and our desires. It's really crucial. So not to think that we don't have needs. But that sense of being overly dependent, overly needy, overly leaning, this is what becomes healed and unified because of a sense of inner fulfillment. If we don't have that sense of inner fulfillment, we're always going to be dependent on things having to be a certain way, either on one particular person being a certain way or everyone being a certain way, which is really you know, a setup for intense disappointment, let alone anger. Uh, um, also, needing situations to be a certain way. Yeah? To release ourselves from this, to release ourselves from this kind of bondage is to train the heart. And in this, we actually find this enormous capability of being able to offer ourselves to others. You know, this, this, this um, living of our intention of being able to offer ourselves to others, of being able to um, be generous without it being such a difficult thing. You know, so much easier to do this in training the heart. Training the heart also brings calm. And this is also no small thing because calm is necessary for insight. We can't demand that insights come. We can't say we're going to have an insight and then one will appear. It is truly a grace and unexpected and always a delight. You know, whatever kind of insight it is, it's a good thing. However, we can really work with the conditions for insight and what conditions insight is calm. If the heart can be calmer and softer and more yielding, then out of this softness, out of this calmness, we're able to see more. It just makes sense because if we're congested within and all clogged up with this and that, then we're not going to be able to see because there's too much of a thicket you know, it's like we're trying to see through the, the weeds, and we won't ever be able to see things clearly. Whereas if we um, have kind of, you know, worked with the weeds some or mowed them down or whatever the right analogy is, it's kind of breaking down. <laughs> that calm, which is the main point, will really allow for greater seeing, for greater insight, you know, seeing inwardly, our, 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 our ability to see inside ourselves. It also brings a sense of empowerment, you know, to be able to focus and to see clearly without distortion. 
Training the heart helps us to sustain mindfulness, to sustain connection. We can't see clearly if we're too far away, if we're uninterested in what we're looking at. And we cannot see change. We cannot see impermanence unless we're willing to stay with things through, from their beginning, through their middle, until their end. You know, we have this illusion of permanence. Not about everything. Of course, we know some things are impermanent, obviously, right here and now. We're going to leave this retreat. That's impermanent, you know, this kind of thing. But we might have a strong feeling, and that's permanent, obviously. This feeling that is happening right now, you know, maybe one felt a great deal of difficulty this morning or despair. Ah, this is permanent. Now, this is really how things are. I've discovered it. I've let everything else go, and I've discovered the truth of things, which is that life is full of despair, and I am a despairing person, and, you know, case closed. (laughs) This is very, very different than if we can sustain the attention on an emotion or on a feeling or on a sensation in the body, because for ourselves, not just the teachings telling us over and over again that everything is impermanent, and then, you know, believing them because we might have some degree of trust in the teachings. But seeing this for ourselves and printing it on our hearts, the only way this happens is by sustaining our attention and relentlessly sustaining our attention, you know, with that which we believe to be permanent. Now, it's not such a big deal with things that we already know are impermanent. I mean, you know, you can notice it, but you don't have to, you know, feel so great about it that you noticed it because you already know it, you know. But to bring this to times when we absolutely don't know, you know, when we just absolutely believe that just this is permanent, there is one exception, and it is this, and this is permanent, to bring this sustaining of the attention to whatever one thinks is permanent is a way to deeply see into change, into impermanence, and to know it for ourselves. Training the heart allows us to let go of preoccupation. It allows us to know an undistracted heart, an unpreoccupied heart, so that we're in touch with life instead of lost in thought. Now, if we're full, then nothing else can come in. We can't really understand anything. Whereas if we're unpreoccupied and undistracted, there's a way in which we can be deeply available. Now, deeply available, available to ourselves and sensitive to ourselves, to our own needs, to caring for ourselves, available to others, you know, really aware of the needs of others and when our desires conflict with the needs of others, you know, aware of the times that we trample over the needs of others because our desires are so strong. Truly available, deeply available. When we walk outside, available to the grass. You know, when we walk under the sky, available to the sky. Um, when we walk down the, down the road and we see all the squirrels jumping and, you know, looking really suicidal, we can... <laughs> We just passed one that really had a problem. We, we can really be available. We can be sensitive and open. The untamed mind is sometimes described as being like a pool of water, where it's muddy and agitated. You know, not a calm pool of water, but a pool of water where there's a lot of algae in it. 
and you just can't see down to the bottom because there's agitation and mud. And it reflects chaos. It distorts things as they truly are. We can't see how things truly are because we can't see down to the bottom because there's too much mud on top. Sometimes this is described as being like a three-legged chair, you know, which three legs, but also one of the legs a little bit off kilter. You have to put a Kleenex underneath to find some stability. It's just, it's not stable. There's a sense of non-stability in that. The untamed mind lives on its own terms, which means that it's unconnected. It means that there's a following of habit, and it's unconnected with the whole of life. It really is insensitive, despite intentions not to be, you know, despite earnestness and sincerity. It just is that way, unless there is a training. Meditation is designed, it actually was designed by the Buddha to quiet the heart. And in the quietness, the image is still of a pool of water, except for it's like the deep recesses of the pool can clearly be seen. It will reflect an accurate picture, which offers a sense of perspective and space. Recently, Michael and I were at Walton Pond, and my 14 year, our 14-year-old niece loves it there, so she was visiting us, and she just drags us there every time she can, she can get there. And, of course, we were swimming around in the pond, and she had left some rocks in the pond in a little pile um, last summer when she was here. She's very industrious with whatever she does. So swimming around, playing around, she had gotten together last summer this little pile of rocks, and um, they were in the pond somewhere. And this time when we went back, this year when we went back, she wanted to see if she could find them, uh, find her pile. And the water was clear enough to actually be able to find the pile of rocks. I thought, you know, she's never going to be able to find them because it's it's a fairly big pond. I mean, you know, we had to be able to stand, so it wasn't the whole of the pond, but it was a lot of the pond. And we could see the, we could finally find the rocks. She was finally able to find the rocks. And the reason is because the water was so clear. She could see into what she wanted to see, what she wanted to find, because of the clarity of the water. To go back to this quote for just a moment, practitioners, I know not of any other single thing so intractable as the untamed mind. What intractable means is when the mind is resentful or harsh or stiff, you know, when there's an inner rigidity occurring. Practitioners, I know, uh, the unta- yeah, I know not of any other single, single thing so tractable as the tamed mind The tamed mind is indeed a thing tractable. And what tractable means is fluid and easy, non-defensiveness, a buoyancy, where the mind has a buoyancy and a vulnerability, a real openness to it. Practitioners, I know not of any other single thing so conducive to great loss as the untamed mind. And what great loss means is that when we're not awake, when we're not present, when we're not sensitive, it's as if we lose our life. In that moment, we lose our life. You know? And then we're like, uh, we've lived many, many years, and we say, well, what happened? You know, life moves so fast. 
Actually, when we practice, life tends to slow down. It's a very interesting thing. We get more of the day because we're more present for it. You know, life goes by very, very quickly when we're not awake, when we're not aware. I know not of any other single thing so conducive to great profit as the tamed mind. Great profit meaning we gain our life. You know, we regain our life. Practitioners, I know not of any other single thing that brings such woe as the mind that is untamed. Great woe. You know, you can really fill that in for yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Practitioners, I know not of any other single thing that brings such bliss. Such bliss. And what is meant by bliss actually is what I call Dharma joy. Now, this is the bliss that comes out of practice, a joy or a bliss that is not dependent on conditions, that is not as glommed onto things having to be a certain way in order to know peace, in order to have a sense of ease. One may not feel wildly happy or excited or thrilled, certainly, with many things that are happening. And at the same time, there can be this, this kind of ease that you could call bliss or Dharma joy. Some years ago, I had a very strong example of this. Michael and I were practicing in a forest monastery in Thailand, in northeast Thailand. And I had been there some years before, a number of years before, and had practiced there. And when I had practiced there many years before, um, the conditions there in any of these forest monasteries in Thailand are generally really simple. There's no electricity and there's no um, um, running water and you wash by getting your water every day and um, pouring cold water over your, over your head and this kind of thing. So they're very, it's very basic. But I found it quite comfortable. I had been a Girl Scout, so it helped. <laughs> <laughs> and I found that the simplicity really suited me. I really, I really enjoyed the environment. I was, really, um, I was really pleased with the conditions, actually. I was with somebody who was really grumpy and, you know, kind of had, had to work his way into the conditions, but he had not been a Boy Scout, so <laughs> I think um, that was part of the problem. <laughs> but anyway, when Michael and I uh, came back for the second time, um, the conditions had, had changed to some degree just because things do change. And basically, it was the same setup of no electricity and this and that, and I had my own little little cottage to be in. Um, so a lot was the same, but a lot of things were different as well. And they were so different and so, um, I'm not sure what to use the word, um, challenging, that I actually wrote a little list of what the conditions were when I was there. And so I'll just tell you this list. Um, it was extremely cold. You know, in coming back, it was really, really very, very cold. And it just happened to be going, Thailand happened to be going through a cold spell that year. And the time I had been there before, I thought I knew how to dress because I had been there before. But turns out I didn't because I expected it to be warmer. And um, very few blankets so chilly all night long, um, sleeping on a, on a wood floor, which was the same as it was before, but nothing to cushion the floor, so the wood 
being um, hard and my hips, being on the thin side, my hips were sticking into the, um, the wood all night. Um, I was sick with the flu and it just never went away. You know, it just, just had the flu and it was really hard to get over it because of the cold. Also, in these monasteries in Thailand, you're offered the same as the monks are offered. This is their discipline, so you engage in their discipline, which is that there is just one meal offered a day, and it's at 8 a.m. in the morning, which for me is a little on the early side to eat. <laughs> and it was basically um, pork fat and, um, and sugar. And... <laughs> And the pork fat I had to say no to, so no protein whatsoever. And the sugar, of course, I love sugar, so I, you know, all these yummy um, Thai custards, so I I ate tons of it. But I was getting really overly stimulated and um, buzzed because of so much sugar. I can take a lot, but not that much. Um, Let's see. There was a lot of noise in the monastery, which there often are in these monasteries. You think you're going to a, you know, a country serene place in the forest. You know, it sounds good. But there are, um, in this particular environment, there were wild chickens. And so they yelled at each other from one side of the monastery to the other, and sometimes enormous dialogues with one another. And really, really um, raucous. I mean, extremely like a raspy tone, really loud. And also there was a lot of talking. Um, luckily, I don't know Thai, so I didn't understand it, and it, it really didn't disturb me, but there was a lot of talking occurring. And, um, and then there were also these squirrels that um, were really interesting. They're kind of like, I didn't expect to talk about the squirrels here, but they're kind of like the squirrels here. But instead of running across the road, because there aren't roads there, they have this thing of bouncing from one hut to another. So they bounce, and they make this huge amount of noise, and then they bounce again, and then they bounce onto a tree, and then they bounce to somebody else's hut, and then they bounce around. So they, they, make, they make their way around the, the monastery by bouncing. You know? And I was in a hut where I had a, a small room in this hut that I could close the door, which this means something a little bit later, being able to close the door. But when I came out of the door, um, there was a space where I could make tea for myself and... Um, what was there? Oh, walking space. But this, this hut was interesting. It had bars on the, around it instead of being surrounded by wood. So I was a bit of a curiosity there. In this particular monastery, which is not always true, but in this particular monastery, very few Westerners um, go there to practice. And so I was a bit of a curiosity as a Western woman. And so um, a lot of women were, you know, I would just be walking by and I'd see a lot of people um, kind of peeking their heads through the bars to see how I was walking, I guess. So I would wave and, you know, <laughs> but just this sense of no privacy. Um, so all these things were happening, and then on this one particular night, all these things were still happening with a few extra things. Um, a huge rat, or no, I'm getting to the rats, a huge spider I found in the, in the, um, in the bathroom. Uh, just a huge, gray, um, <laughs> fuzzy, poisonous-looking spider was in the bathroom. And, you know, I, you know I, I thought I would see the spider, and then I'd go in again, and it would be gone. But 
Not so. This spider enjoyed my hut enormously, and I guess enjoyed the water, and was really around for quite a long time. Just, you know, just staying put, sitting quietly, doing nothing, meditating, but, <laughs> but still there nonetheless. And there were rats waking me up. Um, I could hear at night this little kind of scratching, you know, uh, on top of the hut, I could hear this little bit of scratching, and I would go to sleep. And the first night, I was absolutely fine, because I just thought scratching is happening, you know, and I had no idea that they were rats, you know, what was actually happening. <laughs> so I was, you know, the ignorance was bliss, was true in that case, because I was able to get a good night's sleep for the first night. But then after that, I, I asked our teacher, Ajahn Tampanya, what was up with the scratching, which I should not have done. And he said, oh, it's just rats. And I said, um, I said, but, it, but of course, there's no way that they can get in, right? And he said, no, sometimes they do get in. <laughs> <laughs> so after that, I just, you know, I really was, I was trying to sleep with a flashlight, um, holding the flashlight the whole entire night, you know, and getting up and banging the walls every so often so I could scare them away. And I had an unreliable flashlight. So I had a flashlight that would go on and off. Uh, so this was, this was part of what was happening. So everything was happening this one night. The rats were there. The spider was still there. Ah, ah. I also, on this, and there's, there's actually more, but I'm going to end with one more thing, which is that on this one particular night, the toilet uh, was one that was, um, it's a squat toilet, so it was really close to the floor. So you have to, you have to put your feet on either side and squat on it which generally is just fine, but mine was a little bit off-kilter. <laughs> so who knows? Maybe it was the rats, maybe it was the spider, maybe it was this or that, but I was a little off-balance. So I, I got on it, and I fell because of the toilet being off-balance. So all these things happen on this one night, and I do promise not to add more, even though there were more. It was really quite a night. And it was so interesting, because in the middle of all this happening, I asked myself, now, wouldn't you want to go home? You know? Wouldn't you want to just have, have a, a ride home right now? And my answer was, absolutely not. I am so happy in this moment. I am so happy. You know? And that is, was a real experience of Dharma joy, because there wasn't any reason to be happy. <laughs> Dharma joy is that which is independent of conditions and is dependent on being with things as they are. You know, being with things as they are. There are um, forest tradition ways of training the heart that I wanted to mention. In other words, in the Thai forest tradition, there are particular ways of training the heart. And some of them, I think, are quite interesting and helpful, or I found them so. One thing is that they're very focused on fear. Now, in the Thai force tradition, and I think this is because there is this encouragement to go out into the forest and to be with the wild animals and to make your own way and to find the Dharma within your own heart. So perhaps because of this, of course, in the old days, um, the monks were subjected to experiences with tigers because there used to be tigers in Thailand. So it's become part of the lineage. And this real focus on um, acknowledging fear and finding ways to work with it. 
So the main teacher there, Ajamahabua, um, actually had, he's 90 now, and still going strong from what I hear, but in his early days as a monk, you know, in his 20s, there were still um, tigers in the forests of Thailand. And so he had encounters with tigers, actually. His teacher, Ajaman, instructed his monks to work with the tigers because they had to. And what he said was, if you are afraid of tigers, be where the tigers are and make friends with them. Now, so in a way, he was sending his monks out to be with the tigers so that they could f- be free from that fear. I have no idea how many monks, you know, <laughs> got lost. <laughs> there's, no, there's no data on that, on, on the monks that didn't come home to report that they had lost their fear. <laughs> But certainly, we know that Ajahn Mahabua was one of the one of the ones who really was able to do it. You know, was able. There's a story about him sending metta um, to a tiger that was just sitting, watching him at the end of his walking path. You know, just sitting there watching him, and Mahabua sending him loving kindness. And um, uh, at some point, just he said he turned around and he, the tiger was gone. Yeah, yeah. This kind of thing is really quite something. Ajahn Fun, um, who was also a Thai forest master, said, when we have mindfulness, the heart is at peace. It is not afraid of danger. Even if we are devoured by a tiger, we will not suffer. So, <laughs> we don't know anything about that as evidence either, but, but it, is, it is a strong thing to say. So, when I was there in... Um, in this forest monastery, I was doing my best to work with fear. And I had one um, situation. Of course, there were the rats and there were the, um, uh, the, the one huge spider. But on this one night, I um, had a night on my own by myself, way out in the forest. What happened is that when I had been there earlier in my time at the, at the forest place earlier, um, one of my neighbors came by, a young Thai woman came by, and she said, um, she wrote it on her hand so she wouldn't have to speak. She wrote on her hand, would you like to go to the, f- to the forest with me? And, you know, what I was thinking is, aren't I in the forest already? The <laughs> <laughs> <A> forest. <laughs> but anyway, I was up for anything, so I said, sure, let's, let's go. So I did, and it was really interesting and extraordinary because we walked for a really long way. She guided me. Um, with our unreliable flashlights through the, through the woods, and walked for quite a long way. And then all of a sudden, we came out on this clearing where there was a, a, a whole group of women um, practicing together with candlelight. You know, so just candles. It was so beautiful, candles. And um, women just practicing in their own way, not together, but not as a group, you know, not sit in the bell rings and then walk in the bell rings, but everybody sitting as long as they wanted to and walking as long as they wanted to. And just the, the company of having one another and the beauty of the forest and, um, you know, the, the peace, the quiet, the chickens were asleep. The whole um, atmosphere was just so gorgeous and, and just this sense of of comrades, you know, really doing this together and the beauty of it. So this time, this visit, this time when Michael and I were there on retreat, I sort of expected that at some point something like this would happen, and I was looking forward to it. I thought maybe the same thing would happen. Somebody would come by and bring me um, to the, quote, forest. 
And um, it did happen. Someone, after maybe a couple of weeks of being there, someone came by and said, would you like to go to the forest? And I was really, you know, I was excited this time. It wasn't like I was up for anything. I was excited and ready. And, you know, I took a couple of supplies that I had forgotten last time, meaning extra candles and, you know, toilet paper and important things to have with one. So I got my little knapsack together and um, and I, I went with her. However, it was a really different situation because we kept, same thing, we kept walking and walking and walking and walking. I was just guided by her, you know, like a little child. I was just being guided by her through the woods. However, we got to a certain hut, and she said, okay, have a good night. (laughs) And she left me there. (laughs) So I was completely by myself, and I had no idea even how to get back if I'd want, you know, if I really got concerned about it. I didn't have to get back because it was pitch dark. There was no way to get back. And I wasn't going to go about by myself with this unreliable flashlight. So I was pretty much um, there for the night, stuck for the night in this um, in this little hut practicing by myself with just complete um, night around me. It was just complete no lights around me and a lot of different sounds occurring. A lot of different sounds and bats coming through the the hut from time to time. I know that there's a lot of scorpions in Thailand in in the forest. I know that there are poisonous snakes. I saw some when I was there. And um, I was scared. I was definitely scared to be by myself. Some of me was enjoying it, too, because I I do love being alone. But um, I was also really scared because of the sounds and because of knowing all these different animals were there. And, you know, feeling quite personal about it, that they would, you know, kind of search me out, this kind of self-centeredness of they were going to try to find me. I'm sure they were all occupied with their own families. But I was, um, I was kind of preoccupied with that. And just to take refuge in the breath, you know, it was really feeling the net of the Dharma holding me, you know, because there's no way the mind could go away even for a moment because it would fall into terror, yeah? So I really had to be with the breath, and it really held me up. I mean, it was, and, and became enormously enjoyable, enormously blissful because of staying with it in such an impeccable way. So it was really one of those experiences, too, of being able to... Um, Move through fear with the help of the Dharma. Yeah. Afterwards, when I got back to the, the monastery, I was talking to our, our teacher, Ajahn Tampanyan. You know, he was telling us all these stories about um, Mahabua and this and that. And Michael and, us, and I said, well, you know, about the tigers and everything. And we said, well, can't we just start small? <laughs> you know, with the rats and, the <laughs> and then build our, our, our way up as, as things go. He said that was fine. <laughs> Another um, uh, kind of Thai forest way of training the heart is actually through humor, yeah? actually through a lightness. It's, it's really quite strong there. It's not true in all uh, of these traditions. Some traditions seem to be unbelievably grim, in my opinion. Um, mm, you know, the, the humor is just very once in a while and a little bit quirky. And, of course, you know, Dharma humor, of course, is quirky in its own way because <laughs> you have to know the language and, you know, this and that. 
and uh, have to want to live a quite a different way of life. Um, but still, the lightness that's being that's offered in the Thai forest tradition is something that I personally really resonate with, and I find it really, really helpful. And it seems to be just part of the tradition that you know there's these extraordinary experiences, and then um, people crack up about them. You know, I mean, and you always have the alternative, of course, to laugh or the or to cry. But in this particular lineage, they seem to to laugh. They t- seem to take the option of, of humor. Also in the Thai tradition, um, it's very much, rather than a cookie-cutter approach, it's very much an individual approach. You know? The idea is to calm the mind so that you can see into the heart. You know? And however you calm the mind is fine. You know? Whatever way, as long as it's a wholesome way and in a wholesome object is fine. You know? So using the breath or um, using sound or using the metta practice, you know, whatever is conducive and best for you is what you use to calm the mind with. So it's, it's wonderful. It's not generic. It's not like everyone has to do the same thing. And then using the calmness for insight work to see into the very nature of the heart of ourselves. Another aspect is that in this particular tradition, there are really no maps. In some lineages, um, there are very definite maps. You know, this you do this, and then this happens, and then you move on to this and this. And some people, it's, it works very well for. They have those kinds of minds. Um, in this tradition, and again, I resonate with this very much because I don't have that kind of a mind. Um, just this this understanding that there really can't be a map because all of us are different and have different kinds of conditioning and different natures and different backgrounds and we've been taught different things and we've trained ourselves in different in different skills and this and that. So really um, the aim being freedom, the aim being um, a life of wisdom and compassion and the heart being released from suffering rather than um, it's step this and step that. It's pretty broad when I said, you know, calm the mind so that you can see into the heart. That's about it in terms of the map. Know, because the idea is that delusion is blinding. In other words, we never know what will open up for us because we always start off from the place of delusion. All of us do. You know, we start off from a deluded place. We are operating with a, from a deluded place. And so how would one ever know what's going to ho- open up from moment to moment? We can't because yeah? delusion is blinding. So there's this sense of, always um, opening to the unexpected, you know, kind of always this delight in seeing through delusion and opening to the unexpected, wisdom manifesting itself in very, very different ways at times, you know, just this kind of real interest in nature. It does take a lot of patience to train the heart because the mind is not used to being restrained. It doesn't know the freedom that is possible in restraint. It finds itself feeling constricted or contracted, when actually the restraint opens up an entire unknown inner world to us. And so to trust the training, to trust the patience, to trust the restraint is really important. When the heart is well-trained, we can make wiser choices in life. And we can learn to look for happiness where it truly can be found instead of finding ourselves over and over again lost in disappointment and discouragement because of wanting to find happiness but looking in the wrong place. 
training the heart is maturity of heart. It's really the same thing. And as our heart matures, our motivation in practice shifts. Not caring how we look to others, not practicing because of wanting to be um, a better meditator or anything like this, not based on models of success and failure, not based on concepts of time. You know, I'm going to practice for a year, and then if nothing happens, I'm going to give it up. I'm going to practice for a lifetime, and then forget it next lifetime. You know? <laughs> I'm going to just practice in the right, in the, in the wise direction is this maturity of heart, letting go of concepts of time. In training the heart, we do have the possibility of touching the truth within, of knowing happiness for ourselves, and of wanting this deeply for all beings. We find ourselves vitally alive, sensitive, and whole. Training the heart allows us to actually trust our own hearts. And I want to end by reading you something from Ajahn Chah. In the practice of Dharma, there are many methods. By the way, he's a Thai forest um, meditation teacher, too. In the practice of Dharma, there are many methods. If you know their point, they will not lead you astray. However, if you are a practitioner who does not respect virtue and a collected mind, You will not succeed because you are bypassing the path followed by the great forest masters of the past. Do not disregard these basics. If you wish to practice, you should establish ethical action, concentration, and wisdom in your mind and aspire to the three gems of the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. Stop all activity, be an honest person, and go to it. Although various things deceive you time after time, If you are aware of them, you will eventually be able to drop them. The same old person comes telling the same old lies. If you know it, you need not believe him. But it takes a long time before you know. Our habits are ever striving to deceive. When I had been practicing for only a short time, I still could not trust myself. But after I had experienced much, I learned to trust my own heart. When you have this deep understanding, whatever occurs, you can let it occur and all things will pass on and be quelled. You will reach a point where the heart tells itself what to do. It is constantly prodding, constantly mindful. Your only concern need be to continue contemplating. May all beings have ease of mind. May all beings know peace of heart. May all beings rest in the heart's release. Let's just sit for one one short but strong moment. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.